1: This is Gardening with the RHS. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Love Doctor. I mean, Chief Horticulturist at the RHS. And today we're head over heels for the flowers that remind us of romance. For me, daffodils are the most romantic of flowers, and I grow a great big patch of them for cutting on the back of my allotment. And every year I gather great bundles of blooms and take them to Mrs Barter, well in time for Valentine's Day. So that's my romantic gesture, well, my first of many romantic gestures through the year. With that in mind, we're talking about how to create the perfect floral arrangement for Valentine's Day this weekend. And we'll look at roses, why they're associated with love and explore the importance of pruning. Before all that, though, I'd like to keep the plant-based passion going and hear about a bewitching winter-flowering shrub that's close to one of our advisors' hearts.
2: I'm Jenny Bowden, and I love hammermellis Balmstead Gold. This particular hammermellis is quite an upright-growing witch hazel. All witch hazels have hazel-like leaves. In the winter, they have spidery flowers that look like shards of citrus, either lemons or oranges, and Barmstead Gold is a particularly deep yellow. They flower from December to March. It has lovely autumn colour and the flowers are scented. And they do smell a little bit on the citrusy side. And you can bring them into the house. You can cut small branches off and put them in a vase. And if they're not fully in flower, they'll come out once they're in the warm. Hamamelis have a very unusual flower design, if you like. We're all quite used to daisies and globes, umbellifers like cow parsley, but the hamamelis is quite a unique flower shape. The lovely thing about it is it is the first thing in my garden to come into flower. So although it's not quite spring, it's just telling you that it's not far away. They're really unusual the way they actually come out as well from the bud, if you watch them day by day. They're sort of like slow motion fireworks, just sort of pushing out a petal and then a few more appear. They're easy to grow. They just need a soil which doesn't dry out completely in the summer. The books will tell you that they need acidic soil, but neutral is absolutely fine They will even tolerate a slightly alkaline soil. The main thing is that it has the organic matter in it. So leaf mold or any sort of soil conditioner, just so that it holds onto some moisture. People might say, I haven't got room for one. They can reach about 12 foot, four meters or so, some bigger, some a little bit smaller, but you can prune them. So after flowering, you can prune them to keep them in shape, just prune to a well-placed shoot you can keep them quite small, you can keep them in a container if you'd like to. I don't have snowdrops in the garden and I must get some snowdrops. Uh, My garden isn't great at growing them because it can be a little bit on the dry side. So for me the hammer is very special because it is the first thing to come out in the garden. February can be very bleak and so it's just joyful.
1: Jenny Bowden. Witch hazels are wonderful shrubs and in our grim February climate I like orange ones. There's one called Orange Peel that's absolutely delicious and its sibling raised by the same breeder in Belgium called Harry. Both of those have got rich orange colours that are delightful on a grim glum February day.
3: It's that ephemeral quality of flowers that I find to be so romantic. You really have to just passionately enjoy them for that short amount of time that you have them.
1: Meet Michael Putnam, a renowned floral designer who creates spectacular shows for celebrities and big events. Alongside his partner, Derek, who we'll hear from shortly, he's written a book that looks at the theory behind floral arrangements to help people at home put together their own breathtaking displays. I thought they would be the perfect duo to help us create a Valentine's arrangement to remember.
3: We first got into flowers a few years ago. It was it like was seven, seven, years ago eight, eight years ago. I was in interior design. I worked for a firm in New York, and... Uh, I don't know, sitting at a desk just wasn't really working for me. So I kind of took flowers up as a hobby. I needed something tactile, I needed to use my hands. And I started playing around on the weekends, you know, when I wasn't working, just playing around with flowers and botanicals, anywhere I could find them, farmer's market, grocery store, the flower market. And Derek, who is a photographer, he started shooting my work with interesting backgrounds and people started to notice that we were doing something a little bit different something a little more romantic and loose and gestural. And, you know, at the time, things were really tight and contrived. And I think people got really excited about this new style that they were seeing, which wasn't really new, but it was just coming back.
4: Our creative projects where we push each other are always the best. You know, where you kind of, we can help push each other past like those self-doubt moments and kind of like really go further and like do really amazing things. The first step to creating a Valentine's Day arrangement is color. Taking into consideration who the gift is for, what is their spirit, what are their favorite colors, what are their favorite kind of color palettes. Realize that it's not so much exactly about how expensive the flowers are, but I think paying attention to color and giving a little bit of purpose to the color and consideration of the color is like one of the most important things for sure
3: absolutely i think that when it comes to color yeah it's definitely about the person that you're making this for Dive in a little bit. Yeah, what is their favorite color? And, like, also, what is their association with color? What is your association with color while you're making it? That's what's going to make it romantic. That's what's going to make it special. I think it's about creating something that feels really special for the person that you're giving it to, not just this stereotypical Valentine's Day that you find at, like, a grocery store. 24
4: red roses. We can get a little more creative than that. Yeah. (laughs) But what about the elements? Yeah,
3: and then I think focusing on the elements of design, creating an arrangement, I think it should be something that has a lot of depth to it. And I think you achieve depth by having different sizes of flowers, texture. I would say for somebody doing this at home, I would say focus on maybe three things would be important. Find a flower that's really big and bold, right? Maybe it's a big garden rose or maybe it's a peony. We, we um, call
4: those the face flower. The face flower. The, that's the your show, flower. The showstopper flower. Yeah.
3: You want to have those big, bold blooms that are just like the stars of the show. And then find a flower that sort of sits under that. We call those the filler flowers. And that's something that's going to basically create a canvas for those big flowers to pop off of. It's almost like you're creating something to like frame them. And then you want to bring in gesture and texture, make your flowers dance, make them move, make them embrace every bit of movement that are in it. Maybe it's a flowering branch, you know, like flowering cherry or quince, something that has a lot of movement, something that's really delicate, but also has texture in it. And I think focusing on those elements creates something that is really well-rounded. And really put together, and I think that paired with color, I think you're you're gonna knock it out,
4: <laughs> knock it out of the park. Yeah. What if you're gonna give me Valentine's Day flowers? Are you gonna give me Valentine's Day flowers? I haven't decided. Yet. I don't think he's going to. <laughs> the thing is, flowers quite often feel like work to us. I know. You so know we're what like, I mean? <laughs> so. we love them, we love them, and we love to appreciate them. But you
3: know, no, I'm sure, I'm
4: sure we will have flowers yes. around. Um, I say this year, I would challenge everyone to kind of ditch the traditional gender norms for Valentine's Day and Valentine's Day flowers and forget the pink and the red, leave it at home, and get a little more creative. The other day, Mikey made this arrangement that was almost all black and yellow. It was kind of like butter yellows with some more saturated yellows, really, really
3: dark. Like deep aubergine.
4: Aubergine plum with a touch of black and it was well no and chartreuse he used these really beautiful chartreuse orchids and it was so sophisticated and felt so elevated and it would just be such a beautiful valentine's day bouquet yeah so why does it
3: have to be pink and red and white (laughs) like like i don't know get creative i love coral i think coral is like one of the most romantic colors out there that's just like my own personal opinion of color so like yeah i'd probably get you like coral quince And coral poppies, you know, like for Valentine's Day. That that would do it. I think the biggest advice that I can give to somebody that's just starting out is to just play. I think when you play and you do it in a way where it's not for anybody else but for yourself, I think that that's when you can create a style that sort of represents you as a person. And I think start it off as a hobby and just play around, see where it goes. Like, don't have anything hold you back. Like, that's what I did. Yeah.
4: Flowers have been our ultimate romance, I guess. I mean, we've, like, kind of built our life together and built our success off of flowers. You know, we just sold our fourth book about flowers.
3: Well, it's allowed us to do so much that we probably wouldn't have done. Like, we've traveled the world teaching. You know, we've done so many incredible things. Flowers are what brought us there. Yeah, and allowed us to do it.
4: I think like this whole business has taught Mikey and I so much, not just about like how we work together, but how to really support each other in our marriage and in our relationship and in our business. Flowers have kind of given us this opportunity to really shine and do something different and interesting and be really creative. So, no, Mikey does not put, like, rose petals out on the bed (laughs) for me, but I think in a much more profound way, flowers have kind of, like, transformed our life and our relationship, for sure. I
3: agree with that.
1: Michael and Derek Putnam... I have to say that I rather agree with the possibly apocryphal RHS bigwig who said the best thing about floral arrangements is that they don't last very long but that's easy for me to say because I've outsourced all my floral arranging to my wife who's very good at floral arranging I used to grow her lots of flowers to arrange but now she grows her own she's sort of muscling in on my territory I'm going to be out of a job soon. As Derek mentioned there, the most obvious choice for a Valentine's flower is the rose. For Hundreds of years we've given this fawny plant to others to express our adoration, but why is it associated so closely with the day of love? My fellow presenter, Fiona Davison, explains all.
5: It's a flower that's been associated with love and passion for thousands of years. Cleopatra apparently smothered the floor of her boudoir with red rose petals to seduce Mark Antony, and that clearly worked, and it's been a tradition that's kept going ever since. In the Victorian language of flowers, which we've got many books on in the library, red roses are associated with love and passion, but also with bashful shame, which possibly might make you think twice before giving a big bunch. But you've got to be careful with your rose choice. Yellow roses suggest infidelity and jealousy, so steer clear of that on Valentine's. And white roses are innocence or silence. So I think we'll all stick to the conventional red. The Romans used to offer roses to the goddess Venus, and she's the goddess of love, so it might go back to that. I think the attraction of flowers as a romantic gift is also possibly something to do with that they're beautiful and transient. They don't last. And so there's association there, natural association with ideas of love and the transience of love. You might not think a library was a natural place to look for expressions of passion and love, but we are full of it. The shelves have got lots and lots of romantic poetry and stories all illustrated with beautiful flowers. And I think one of the most impressive parts of the collection in terms of rose imagery that have a romance of their own are we're very lucky. We've got a first edition of Redoute's Les Roses. Redoute was one of the preeminent flower painters and he painted roses. He was a flower painter to Marie Antoinette, and then the French Revolution happened, and he kept he managed to keep his head, and he ended up being flower painter to Empress Josephine, and painted her roses in her garden in Malmaison, and we've got these most sumptuous, beautiful pictures of roses that he painted. And she was such a big rose fan that during the Napoleonic Wars, apparently the British Navy let ships carrying roses to Josephine through because that was the gentlemanly thing to do. You couldn't keep a lady from her roses. I think one of the interesting things that you can find out about roses if you want to dig a little bit deeper in our collection is just how international they are. The fact that we have repeat flowering roses that have a long... Flowering period is entirely thanks to roses, which were brought over from China and interbred with European roses and tea roses. Apparently, they got their name because they came via the tea route from the east. So there's a lot of global connections. It's a real global flower. Valentine's Day has become much more commercial, and so you buy roses now. I think, though, the giving of flowers was particularly popular in the Victorian era because they invented this whole language of flowers idea where you could give quite complicated messages via the medium of a bunch of flowers. Red roses were already associated with love, so they were a a natural to give on Valentine's Day.
1: Thanks, Fiona. You might not think that there's much to do to your roses at this time of year, but it's actually quite important to give them a prune. I spoke to advisor Nikki Barker to get her tips on cutting them back, but also how she thinks another plant should get a bit more attention at this time of year.
6: Whilst roses obviously aren't really flowering at this time of year... It is a really good time of year to prune almost all roses, with the exception of ramblers, really. So if you've got climbing roses, repeat flowering shrub roses, hybrid teas or floribundas, and ground cover roses, actually, then Valentine's Day, if you haven't pruned them by then, then that's the day to get out and do it. Even if you've got a rose in your garden and you don't know what it is, as a general rule of thumb, mid-February is a good time to be pruning it, that when they're just starting to come back into growth... A little bit later in colder areas of the country, though, wouldn't apply to very cold areas of the country. You'd want to leave it until early March, really, then. When you're pruning roses, always use clean, sharp secateurs and loppers if they're very thick-stemmed. And the first thing you need to do, whatever type of rose, is to remove any dead, diseased or dying stems or branches out of them. And then you need to stand back and just look at the rose and see what shape it is and what needs to be removed, how far you need to cut it back. Always cut back to just above a bud, whether that's a climber or a bush rose, and try and cut to an outward facing bud, so a bud that's pointing outwards, otherwise the new growth will be crossing, it will come inwards and it'll make your plant look quite congested. So With hybrid teas and floribundas, which are probably one of the most common types of bush roses that we have in the garden, then prune out all of those dead or dying stems. If it's an old plant, then you can take some of the very old stems right back to the base to encourage more flower and then prune back strong stems to sort of four to six buds on each stem and that will reinvigorate them and hopefully you'll get more flower in the summer. So it's a good idea later on in the spring to give your roses a feed. So that can be a general purpose fertiliser. Get a bit of mulch organic matter around them as well. That will always do them good. And then when they first start to shoot, especially if we have quite a warm start to spring, keep an eye out for aphids. They're very easy to control when, when you first spot them, when the new leaves start to come out and buds. And if you just squash them with your fingers, then you don't have to resort to spraying or anything then. And if you can get them early, then it stops them spreading. So do keep an eye out for them. And then hopefully your roses will bloom floriferously throughout the summer. It's quite important to know whether you've got a climbing rose or a rambling rose. So rambling roses get very, very large. And you tell the difference because rambling roses usually only flower once. They'll flower for two or three weeks of the year. And that's it, one spectacular flush of flower. Climbing roses tend to repeat flower through the summer. So rambling roses you want to prune in the autumn when they've finished flowering. You don't want to be leaving it to the winter, but they're really the only group that you do that to. So do make sure you you know whether you've got a climber or or a rambler. You would know if you've got a rambler because it will be 20 feet tall and, and scrambling up through a tree or something like that and quite thorny they often have smaller flowers as well rambling roses so lots and lots of small flowers rather than the larger flowered climbers roses get all the glory and i think maybe violets should get a little bit more attention on valentine's day i think violets definitely need better press and we don't see them as often as we used to because they're relatives of pansies and violas that you might buy for spring and winter bedding. But actually, Viola odorata is scented, it's evergreen, it's matte forming. So it's really good ground cover. It's really hardy as well. It flowers in the winter and spring, sun, partial shade. What's not to love about it, actually? It's a fantastic little plant. They do a really good job as long as you've got reasonably well-drained soil. They don't mind what soil they grow on. And they are harbingers of spring, aren't they? When you see the violets coming up with primroses, then you know that the light's there at the end of the winter tunnel. Violets don't need a huge amount of care either. So unlike roses, actually, where you've got to do the pruning, you've got to keep an eye out for pests and disease and make an effort to look after them, violets you don't really need to do that so they're really good in partial shade under trees you don't have to deadhead them they do their own thing there's no pruning involved so if you want a a really easy winter and spring flowering ground cover there's lots and lots of really nice cultivars of violets as well that you can use they're scented so they've got a lot going for them they make quite a dense mat as well so they'll creep along and fill that shady gap and do a really good job with definitely a lot less work than having roses in your garden.
1: Great tips from Nikki. Did you know that violets are traditionally given to people to celebrate their 50th anniversary? So they're very closely linked to long-term love. Well, that's all for today. For more on the topics we've discussed, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or visit our show notes. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. Off to the garden I trot to whip up a display to wow Mrs Barter.